Hello everybody and welcome back to the Full Circle podcast. This week we are continuing our theme of transformation. When I think of what transformation is, I think about someone coming back to their true selves. The truth is many of us grow up unable to express who we truly are or live our truth open and honestly. Transformation is the path we take towards authenticity and truth with ourselves and those we love. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Caroline Page about her transformation into her true self. In 1999, Caroline underwent a gender transition, making her the first openly serving transgender officer in the British Arms Forces. After a nearly 20-year career with the Royal Air Force, there were immediate calls for her dismissal. Caroline was called a liability and a danger to personnel on operations. However, Caroline met all challenges, becoming a highly respected tactics specialist and receiving commendations for exceptional service in Iraq and Afghanistan, including one awarded in the 2012 Queen's New Year's Honours List. She enjoyed a further 16 years as a female aviator and helped see the armed forces transform from a hostile environment for LGBT plus personnel to one of proud inclusion. In 2011, she received a PUS MOD award for her trailblazing service and dedication to evolving tri-service transgender inclusion policy and support. Caroline is now a business owner, author, public speaker and active community member. Caroline is also the joint CEO of the newly formed charity Fighting with Pride, the LGBT plus military charity. The charity is leading the health and well-being support of LGBT plus veterans, serving personnel and families. Caroline had the bravery to transition into her true self. I'm so excited to share with you her inspiring story. Welcome, Caroline, to the Full Circle podcast, Finding Your Way Home. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you today. So how are you arriving into this conversation today? Uh, hi, Gillian. It's lovely to um, speak to you. Um, yes, I'm I'm here at home. I <laughs> very rarely, uh, it seems these days, that I manage to uh, be at my desk, which is strange after a lockdown, of course, because I spent ages to it, but now I'm on the road a lot, so... It's, it's great to be here. So I first want to say congratulations on joining the Sunday Remembrance Service. So how was that for you? Absolutely unbelievable. It's such an amazingly powerful experience. I, I kind of guessed it would be. But um, actually, when you're there and uh, the emotion of what's going on around you um, as you march past the cenotaph and especially with the people that I was there with um, was just uh, overpowering. And it was just an amazing place to be. Um, So it was I was I was there to uh, remember friends who I've lost on on the way uh, in on operations uh, throughout uh, my service career, but also obviously those that fell before. But we were also there for the first time ever as an LGBT plus contingent marching at the parade and all the visibility, the cameras and everything were on us. And we had uh, some amazing veterans there who had never um, 
felt themselves as part of the military for such a long time. So it's an amazing, amazing experience. Unbelievable. I noticed I was obviously looking at some of the footage and some of the pictures and it looked like it was a really, I don't know, really pivotal moment in what's happening within the community at this moment in time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's something um, the LGBT plus veterans community has been isolated from the military family for 21 plus years. And so this was the first occasion and people say, well, why do you need to have that visibility? But if you don't have that visibility, how do people know you're there? How do they know that the LGBT plus uh, community has always been part of the armed forces Mm. um, through time and memorial? Um, But it's also about that opportunity to pay your respects uh, openly and proudly uh, who you are and for your and recognising uh, your time in service. So it's lots of emotions flying around uh, on Sunday, but the, the 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 power of the crowd as well. Uh, all the streets were lined. People came out to uh, pay respects themselves. A lot of uh, obviously ex-military people in the audience, but also a lot of people who weren't, maybe family members, but also just uh, public who wanted to come and show their respect on the day, but also to uh, show respect for those who were marching as veterans on the day. So the the um, the kind of uh, atmosphere was just amazing. That's, that's really good. I'm really glad. So obviously we're here to talk about your transition and your transformation into your authentic self. So I wondered if you could start by sharing a little bit more around your childhood and what life was like for you growing up. Yeah, it was in some ways it was quite an exciting life growing up because my dad was in the army and uh, he used to travel every two to three years. So we moved every two to three years. But most of that time uh, tended to be abroad. Uh, There was a a large UK military presence abroad in in the 50s and 60s. Uh, And so uh, we traveled with me and my brothers and my sister travelled with my parents. And so we went to lived in Germany for a long time. But we also got to live in Malaysia, which was uh, an absolutely amazing place to grow up. So when we were living in Malaysia, I was from the ages of five through to eight. And we were right on the beach there. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. So I have lots of kind of happy memories uh, from that time. But I also have some not so happy memories because uh, I was very aware uh, from around the age of five uh, that my gender identity conflicted with who I was. And so I knew that I was different to everybody else and that I was identified as a boy, but I actually, my me, myself, identified as a girl. And my dad being in the uh, armed forces, the military was intolerant to um, that kind of diversity in those days. And there was a ban on LGBT plus service. And so he was influenced by that. So to have somebody in the family who was LGBT plus was uh, very, very difficult for them. And so it was made clear that it wasn't acceptable and I had to hide who I was. But of course, you can't do that you can't switch off your identity you can't switch off who you are it's there all the time so what it does is instills in you this belief that you're alone that you're the only person that's like that you're the only youngster who uh, feels that way and of course in those days there was no social media there was no role models visible and there was it wasn't talked about and there was nothing for me to reference to so that compounds that worry that you're somehow broken and this is embarrassment uh, to your family. But at the same time, 
I still explored every possibility that I had to be Caroline. I had a, a younger sister and unbeknown to her, I shared her clothes whenever I could in a, an empty house. And it, I just got time to be just me and wear what I wanted to wear uh, when the house was empty and just sit there and read a book but keep a wary eye on sort of windows and doors and things for people passing or about to enter the house and, and, and sort of run away. So it was kind of a hard time, but a good time as well. So lots yeah. of good memories. So can you remember, I mean, I'm sure you can actually, when you first started to question your gender identity, can you share a little bit more about that when that first came apparent to you? Yeah, so I, I remember I remember the place, and when I look at the place, I can I can figure out the date and the time and where where we were, and so I was five at the time. I'm not able to recall memories before that, so I don't know if I had um, sort of exhibited any uh, discomfort in my gender prior to that point. But at that opportunity, um, I remember I distinctly remember walking through the house and my sister's clothes were laid on my parents' bed and it just felt instinct really more than anything else. It was just this, ah, oh, that, that that's me, I need to put those on. And so I did, but I also knew it was wrong. Boys were boys and girls were girls and I shouldn't be feeling that way. So I also knew it was wrong. And when I heard the heavy footsteps of my dad coming up along the, the corridor, we lived in a bungalow, so it was it just come along a panic and I, I dove under the bed because uh, I couldn't get the dress off. And I was discovered, obviously, unbeknown to me, probably my feet were sticking out or something like that. I, I don't know, but I was discovered. And it wasn't a very good experience. It wasn't, it didn't. It was a, a really good shouting at and I was made to feel like I was uh, shameful. And uh, and so it caused me a lot of concerns for a while, thinking, why would I be like that? If I could, I would have switched it off, but I couldn't. And I used to go to bed every night and think, right, next morning when I woke up, this will be a dream. And, you know, I'll just be me and I'll be Caroline. God, that must be quite, you know, thinking about that from such an early age as well, that's quite, quite hard, especially if you're not able to talk about it openly in your family environment. And that's what made it worse, I think. So there was no reassurance, there was no attempt to try to address it or to uh, nobody to share it with. I learned many, 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 many years later that the best person I could have possibly shared it with was an auntie who would have been, I'm sure, very supportive, but you don't know that at the time. And of course, because we lived abroad, we've had very rare contact with the rest of the family. So so there were very few opportunities for me to address it, which is, you should never have to face something like that on your own. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously you carried that right with you into your adult years, didn't you? Because then obviously you joined the Air Force. And as you've described, you know, it wasn't accepted at that time. So can you tell me more about and share more with me around what inspired that journey, first of all, to join the Air Force? And then obviously how that kind of, you know, started to kind of unfold for you in your career? Yeah, so why would I join the military that was anti-LGBT plus? Uh, people ask me that. But of course, you join the military for all sorts of reasons. Actually, the thing that took me into the military was that when my dad retired from the army and we settled up in Cheshire, and I had uh, one of the other things I found fascinating when we were living in Malaysia was our house was next to a field and the field used to be visited a lot by helicopters bringing in people or um, stores and things like that, supplies. 
and I was fascinated by these helicopters and I had this uh, interest in aeroplanes and so uh, when we retired I was when my dad retired I was 13 and the school I went to was an all-boys school but there was a poster on the wall for the air cadets and it and it offered venture and adventure with uh, an aviation theme so I kind of went that would be nice to do I'll go and do that and what I found was it was an incredible focus away from who I was and and the issues of not being able to be myself it just gave me something to uh, really enjoy and focus on and I found myself aged uh, 15 applying for a gliding scholarship and I found myself uh, doing the course and then one day on a, a blue sky beautiful day on my own having been told that I could you know go off on my own in this open cockpit glider at 2,000 feet just on the River Dee looking into North Wales uh, just a, just by Chester and going wow this is absolutely amazing and then figuring out how I was going to get down. <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was luckily I, I, they'd let me sort of prove that I could do that bit before I got airborne. But it was just that it took my mind off all my worries and my troubles. And I wanted more. I wanted to do that more. So I applied for a powered flying scholarship, which was sponsored by the Air Force. Never thinking for a minute that I would achieve that. But if you don't apply and you don't try, then you you'll never achieve it. So I gave it a go anyway. And amazingly and wonderfully, I won a place and off I went and I was taught how to fly. So I ended up as a teenager with uh, a pilot's license before I could drive drive a car, really. (laughs) And this was just such an amazing thing to do. But we, my dad, my family, myself, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, I was still at school. My parents weren't wealthy. And the only way I explored options for getting a job in a a career in aviation. And the only way I could see me doing it was to join the military. So I looked at joining the Army, the Air Force and Navy, because they have aeroplanes of different sort of descriptions. But the one that stood out to me for its obvious connection to the air was the Royal Air Force. And so that's what took me into the Air Force I wanted to fly. So I ended up joining an organisation that was hostile to my very identity. But I had this idea that I'd been hiding that for uh, 14 years already and that I could probably hide it still but also I couldn't see at that time a way forward to step out and be openly myself so I just made this assumption that I would just get the job that focus on flying and aviation would be something that would keep my mind yeah. off actually my own personal uh, problems and I'd just uh, knuckle down and go and do do that. Yeah, amazing. And that sense of just I could just could hear that in your voice, that sense of I don't know whether it's peace or freedom or something when you was in the air gliding. I just wondered, you know, obviously you took that with you then obviously into the work that you did and everything, but how did you manage hiding yourself away for such a long time? Even though I mean I know you obviously enjoyed your work and you loved what you did, but how was that for you, unable to really fully express who you were? Yeah, so the peace and quiet of being a glider didn't last long because I ended up on fast jets, which were very noisy and loud. Very different. (laughs) (laughs) But the uh, way I hid myself, it was the pure worry of not being accepted by my family. 
And that puts so much pressure on you. You think that if your family realise that you are transgender and they don't want that within the family. And that was for sure the perception that I had and that my siblings had as well, that it wouldn't be acceptable. So you stand to lose everything you love. So you put so much effort into hiding it. But you can't, as I say earlier, you can't, you've still got to try and take those risks to be yourself. And I did take those risks and I did get caught out. But people didn't put two and two together necessarily because they, maybe because they were scared of finding what the answer was or because it just went completely over their heads. I don't know. But uh, I did get caught out on occasions. Was that with your family that you got caught out or was that also in your working environment as well? So I got caught out by neighbours and <laughs> and, uh, and family occasionally, but um, in my working life as well. So, uh, for instance, once I walked into a bar and somebody pointed at me and shouted, uh, he's got lipstick on, he's got lipstick on. And I thought, uh, right, I'm pretty sure I had cleared my all makeup sort of off my face before uh-huh. I walked onto the base. Yeah. But uh, there was this uh, worry then I had. So I quickly um, cleared my face before anybody could turn around and see the evidence and yeah. you know and it kind of went away but there was other occasions like that where like for instance in the summer answering the door to a very good friend of mine who was also on the squadron having just very quickly stripped from wearing a bra and not realizing that of course the bra left uh, strap marks on my body and I <laughs> stood at the door with clear evidence that I'd be wearing a bra so Gosh, interesting. Things I can laugh about now, but they were really scary moments because the consequence of that was really bad. Absolutely. And and I know know that we are laughing about it now, but actually at the time, I would imagine that would have been very frightening and very scary because actually there was so much to lose, really, in many respects from what you've shared. Yeah. So if I was outed as being LGBT plus uh, in those days, in the this was in the 80s, I joined the Air Force. There wasn't very much awareness of what it meant to be transgender. And in fact, the word wasn't used very much at all. So not publicly anyway, in reference documents and so on. And there was an assumption that I would be, uh, there's certainly an assumption within the military was that I was a gay man who liked wearing a dress to attract other men. That was kind of their idea of who I was. And the ban on LGBT plus service was quite a horrendous one. So if you were discovered to be LGBT plus, it wasn't a I'm ever so sorry, you're going to have to leave, but we'll make sure that you get resettlement training or housing placement or anything like that. You were literally thrown off the base. Some people were sent to prison. You'd have medals stripped from you and all sorts of horrible things uh, which made you feel shameful and not worthy of being a military person. But for me, the biggest worry was that I would lose my family still. So and they would be shamed because of the shame that I'd brought on them uh, or the perceived shame that I'd brought on them. I knew I would lose my friends. I would lose my job there for my income there for my house, which was I had a mortgage and a house. So that was my sanctuary and everything would come crashing down. And that's quite a burden to carry day in, day out. Just that one little mistake of having those visible marks uh, to show that you'd been wearing a bra would uh, bring so much devastation. Absolutely. And that is a huge weight to carry because obviously you said you carried it from being five really all the way until you first you know, kind of recognised that all the way up into your adult life. And yeah, I would imagine that can feel quite heavy after a time to carry that weight around. It does. And it led for some quite dark times, quite mm-hmm. dark moments. And 
a worry that there was no way out of this. I was going through my 20s. It was bad enough struggling with that as a youngster, but then you're in your 20s and you're realising that your life is passing you by and you're living your life to the expectations of other people, other people that you love, but still it's, you know, it's to their expectations, not your own. And so it was when I got into my 30s that I realised, you know what, enough is enough. I've missed all of that part of my life. I need to do something about this now. This is crazy. Yeah. And that was actually going to be my next question is around, you know, when did you decide or to kind of get that courage to share who you were with the rest of the world, your family, your work? It was a realisation. Actually, it came from uh, in 1995. I was on helicopters at that point, tactical trooping helicopters. And I ended up in uh, Bosnia in 1995 as part of a rapid reaction force, which was responding it, it was generated as an Anglo-French force generated in response to the Srebrenica uh, massacre and to try and resolve the conflict there. And I ended up in amongst all this conflict and I was there seven months on the ground and with no opportunities to sort of be myself and re- but to see all this devastation around and realising that you only get one shot at life. It's only there once and so you need to do something about it. So that's kind of what put him my mind I need to do something about this and it's I set in place a series of tests for myself to see uh, how I would deal with this and in the end I decided to tell my sister because I went through a whole list of people that I was going to tell and I thought if I told somebody within the military and they told somebody else that was it all game over if I told my sister she's less likely to do that and of my family members I felt that she was hopefully going to be the one that would be supportive. So we were flying. uh, There was a training requirement for a helicopter to go up into Scotland and she lived right up in the top end of Scotland. So it wasn't just being able to pop around the corner and say, hello, this is something I need to tell you. So I met up with her when we were off duty, uh, went to her house and we arrived at her house about seven o'clock in the evening. And it took me till about four o'clock in the morning to tell her. Uh, because I was so worried that when I when I did tell her, you can't take those words back. And if she kind of didn't understand and didn't accept what I was telling her, then that was it. I've lost it. I knew I would never be able to speak to her again or she would probably never want to speak to me again. So there was all this worry about telling her. And eventually she encouraged me to tell her. And when I did, I got the most biggest hug and uh, the reassurance that I was really, really hoping for. So I knew I had at least one ally there. And that gave me a little bit of comfort knowing that if I, when I did tell the Air Force, that if they said, right, that's it, we don't want your service anymore, goodbye, then at least I had some support outside of the military. So that was quite comforting. So what I did was I went out to, to, I decided the best way to do this was to show the Air Force that it was a medical issue and that the medical issue was solvable. And so I went outside the military and uh, to private medical care and I uh, built up a portfolio. And then one day I walked into my medical officer's appointment, booked a double appointment and sat down and said, hey, look, I'm, I'm transgender. I want to transition gender, but I want to stay in the military. Please help. And she became another really wonderful ally. Um, She cleared her desk for the afternoon and we sat down and talked about it all. Um, And then she helped with uh, taking that request through to legal policy, employment policy, medical policy, all the right people to to see if I could stay in service. Because this was 1999, uh, February 99, and the ban was still in place at that point. 
Gosh, how, can you, I don't know, I'm sure you can remember actually, but how did it feel when there was that sense of acknowledgement that actually, yeah, I would like to help you with this and support you with this? It's a weight of worry off your minds because the, the old adage of problem uh, shared uh, is a problem uh, halved or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. It's a problem halved, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it was such a relief because having that support is really, really important. Well, it was crucial. It was crucial Absolutely. to my future, my mental health, my well-being. Everything was crucial to it. But what was even more amazing was the fact that the senior commanders in the Air Force uh, turned around and said, yes, you can stay in service. And that is just unbelievable feeling that it's just kind of, oh, my goodness, I can now be me yeah. and I can do the job that I love doing and I can be open about who I am and I can just carry on with the rest of my service I had another 16 years of service to complete at that point Um, and I could do that service without that worry of making a silly little mistake which would get me reported and then everything would come tumbling down kind of feels like what a relief finally that you can like you said fully show up and be yourself and so that's when you became the first transgender officer to serve openly in the military in the armed forces is that right that's right yeah yeah yeah. And, and, and so obviously after you went through your transition, did you have any challenges after that with people around you in the workplace still? Was there any still kind of any stigma or anything that was, was present? Yes, uh, yes, there was a lot of... Uh, the, the problem was, firstly, I'd become visible. So when I was hiding who I was, nobody knew. And, and therefore, you know, I was invisible to everybody. The minute I stepped out and went to work as Caroline... I was visible to everybody. And of course, the messages soon get round that there's this uh, person who's transitioned gender in the the armed forces. And uh, people I bumped into would come up to me and ride up to my face, face to face and say, what what on earth are you doing in my Air Force? Get out. There's no place for people like you. And um, what I found was uh, actually I built up a nice uh, close circle of friends who were in the military and they were very supportive and the people that I worked with who had that direct connection to to me being in that their workspace were able to see I was just a person trying to get by and do my job like anybody else so um so I didn't face that many issues directly within my own unit but the minute I stepped away from there then um, people didn't know me and they didn't know what value I gave were wanting to know why I was there and of course, you can't change what I what I realised is that the military up until that point had for 20, 30, 40 years or more been told that there's no place for people like me in the military. And you can't change that overnight. And although the senior commanders had said, yes, I can stay, there was no awareness programme or um, d- description of why they, that had changed and why I was able to stay in service. So I was having to fight my own battles and sort of explain why I had that right to be there. Yeah. And so um, so it became very difficult for several years. But what I realised was there was challenges. I was outed in the newspapers and ended up on the front page and then people saying that I was a danger and a liability to my colleagues and there was no place for me. Um, so what I uh, set out to do then was to challenge that by proving to them that uh, I was of value uh, in the the military. Gosh, and I I suppose after that kind of such a long time to wait for that point and then to get obviously again, which is is like you said, not from your close 
connections or your friendship groups but that sense of still having to deal with that and battle that but also prove yourself after doing so many years of amazing hard work to begin with then you had to go on then and still continue to prove yourself but you did do that didn't you and you overcame many obstacles and then served I think you mentioned was it 16 years you'd continue to serve and at that point you'd received also lots of commendations for exceptional service can you share just more about the work that you were doing and that brought you that recognition? Uh, Sure yes Um, so I was uh, involved with bringing a brand new helicopter into service in in the Air Force, which was the Merlin. Before I transitioned, I was working on that aircraft and it was still being put together at the the factory. And it was it's it was a complex aeroplane, 24 soldiers and had four crew. And it was the first digital cockpit we had. And it was very uh, an amazing aeroplane. But when when I transitioned, I was taking off flying duties for um, 15 months or so. Um, was they understood the medical processes and the stresses and all sorts of other things. Once they were happy with that, then I pushed hard to get back to that job that I was doing before. And I ended up helping to bring this aeroplane in and becoming, I was a tactics instructor and platform protection specialist. So I was teaching our crews how to operate the aircraft in a hostile environment like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and also working on the systems on board the aeroplane as a as an aircrew uh, operator uh, to understand them rather than from an engineering perspective as, as, an, as an operator flying the aircraft, uh, how those systems work and how they would keep you safe and so on. Um, and those were those are challenging environments, Iraq and Afghanistan. And so there's lots of uh, complex uh, things that happen and there was all sorts of decision processes that I got involved with where I was able to say, okay, if we don't do this, then something horrible is going to happen and, you know, we need to do that. And that's why I ended up getting uh, the commendations for exceptional service because they, I was being credited for the work I was doing was helping to keep the aircraft and therefore the troops on board and the crew uh, safe in those kinds of environments or safer in those kinds of environments. Uh, but that had knock-on effect wider than just our own aeroplanes because other aeroplanes were using those systems. So some of the big transport aeroplanes, for instance, and the Americans had the same system. So there was, um, so I was able to do work because I didn't have that pressure of having to hide who I was Uh, and I knew that if I if I failed then there would be a told you so transgender people aren't of any value to the military and we shouldn't have them in so there's that extra bit of pressure on there knowing that you need to show them that's not the case and so I put the extra I, I put the extra time and effort into it but that wasn't the main driver behind it the main driver behind me putting extra time and effort in was because I wanted my friends, I wanted the people on those aeroplanes to be safe. That's what I wanted. Yeah. Um, so so it was an amazing, that was another amazing experience, but um, that's why I ended up with those commendations, one of which was in the Queen's New Year's Honours list in, in 2012, and that, that was fabulous. That's imagine. fabulous. Absolutely. Because I was able to take know. my sister to the, uh, to, we had a reception for the um, troop, the muster of troops for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. 2012 was one of the um, fallouts of winning an award in the 2012 uh, New Year's Honours List. And I was able to take my sister there. Uh, and that was just 
fabulous. That's lovely, amazing. Such, yeah, well, congratulations, obviously amazing. Now, I know that, you know, we're talking here about your kind of life before and, and then your life after transitioning. And I just wondered, how did you feel when you look back on your career now in terms of those differences between when you were hiding versus when you didn't have to hide? Was there any significant differences in terms of how you felt within yourself and, and, and how you just showed up just generally in terms of the work that you did. So I suppose what I'm meaning is, did your work after having to prove yourself, but did your work feel more in flow after that because you didn't have to hide yourself or? You're absolutely right. It was kind of more in flow because you didn't have that worry um, of somebody tapping on the shoulder and saying, follow me, and then uh, undergoing this horrible uh, investigation and so on. But also there was the risk uh, of all of the other things that I spoke about earlier of losing those. That's a lot of pressure to relieve from somebody. So just being able to uh, be themselves, it, it releases so much worry and, and risk and so on. So I was able to, it was able to flow uh, a little bit better. But also when I was uh, working before I transitioned, uh, any opportunity I got, I would go home and get behind that door and relax and be Caroline. And so whenever I took leave, for instance, my leave wouldn't be going off on holidays around the world. My leave would be going home and spending a week or so just being Caroline. And uh, I wasn't able to, to do much more than that. So once I transitioned, I didn't need to do that. So it meant I spent more time socially uh, mixing with people. It meant I, I was able to go off and do things that everybody else does when they have time off rather than locking yourself behind Absolutely. curtains and closed yeah. doors. Yeah. And that affects your work as well. So there's always, always it means that you're able to put 100% of yourself into everything that you're doing because it's you. It's you. You're not Absolutely. hiding half of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned there that you went with your sister to the New Year's Honours list. And I wondered, and I don't know how, how comfortable we are talking about this, but I just wondered what happened with your family? Did you obviously they knew eventually obviously when you transitioned so how did how did that work out and and with your family yeah so it didn't go very well at all uh, which is what I kind of knew Mm -hmm. and I don't blame my parents in many ways because I blame the fact was that they couldn't they were more worried about the shame uh, that I transitioned gender than anything else and and what they would say to the neighbours and what would it, they would say to the rest of the family rather than sort of sitting down and thinking it through uh, as a family. Um, and so that made it even more difficult for them, which was a great shame. So uh, when I thought that once I transitioned within the military and my dad being a military man saw that and that the military accepted me, that he would then go, OK, if the military can accept you, then, you know... I need to rethink uh, this. But unfortunately, the family kind of broke up. So there was me and my sister. My sister stayed very close to me. My brothers and my parents stepped away. But they told me not to tell the wider family because they were so embarrassed about this. So I warned them that if I went into, if my story got out into the newspapers, that would be the first thing the wider family would read about. And that's exactly what happened. And it was 15 months after I transitioned, I ended up on the front page of the newspaper. And in the meantime, my parents had told the wider family that I'd emigrated to Canada and they wouldn't see me again. 
and all of a sudden I'm on the front page of newspapers showing what had actually happened. So my family ended up split. So half the family sided with my parents, sides probably the wrong word to use, but half the family felt the same way as my parents that I'd let the family down and that it was, uh, you know, appalling. My behaviour was appalling and they didn't want to speak to me again. The other half of the family were angry with my parents at being denied the opportunity to support me. And I've grown closer to them. I've got some wonderful aunties and cousins uh, who uh, our relationship just developed magnificently from that. And we got closer. So it was a great shame that my parents and my brothers weren't able to kind of get their head around that I wasn't bringing them shame. I was just being myself. And, you know, I had to I had to do what I had to do. That's families for you. Yeah, well, I think it's it is very difficult, isn't it? And I suppose when some, you know, I suppose maybe as you described, your family being quite entrenched in that kind of mindset, it is very difficult, I suppose, to unlock that. And it's a shame, really, because they didn't experience the best of you, most probably, which is a shame. Yeah, because both my parents are deceased now. So, uh, and I have my sister, and my sister is sadly as well. She passed uh, away. Um, two years ago uh, through cancer but the um my sister believed that my dad was uh seeing because obviously i was uh people were talking about me a lot and he was seeing things that were making him rethink his approach to it all and she thinks uh, had he uh, survived another year or two then he would have probably uh, turned the corner and if he'd have turned the corner, then I think the rest of the family would have done because they would have uh, seen that and as and it would have been a positive thing. So it's yeah. a little bit of a shame, but yeah. that's the way it went. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your, your, your sister as well there. So since leaving the military, you have been doing lots of really good work. And I know that you founded an organisation as well to literally support charities and it to bring together LGBT plus service personnel. Um, so can you share a little bit more around the work that you're doing now around this? Yeah, so there was um, a few of us that founded uh, a charity called Fighting with Pride, mm-hmm. of which I'm a, a co, um, sorry, a joint CEO. And we founded this charity because in January 2020 was the 20th anniversary of lifting of the ban. And there was celebration at how far the military had moved forward. But we uh, were speaking to individuals who were dismissed before the ban was lifted and who had a very, very different experience of service in the military and had fallen on hard times. And we thought nobody's gone back to pick them up. They're still there and they're still having lots of challenges, whether that be mental health or well-being or uh, financial or housing. There's still lots of uh, challenges for them and nobody had address that so we set the charity up to do that so the charity is there to support lgbt plus veterans but also serving personnel and families um but we made it our priority to um help by doing several things one of which is engaging with all of the military charities that are out there the charity sector and all of the mental health trusts so nhs uh, mental health trusts to help them understand what happened to those veterans so that they can better support them. We're also trying to bring all those veterans together because they're in isolation and they don't feel connected to the military family. Um, and so we're trying to bring them together to show them that times have changed and that their service is respected. We're also doing research into the impacts of the van so that we can help 
uh, to steer future uh, support and services. And we're also engaged with the government uh, to look at what can be done to, uh, in terms of reparations to help them get back on their feet. So it's keeping us really, really busy. It sounds like it is amazing. And I'm assuming you're getting quite a lot of good traction and good support and good response from the work that you're doing. Yeah, so um, it's it's heartwarming that everywhere we go and knock on the door and we uh, say, look, this is what happened to these people. The doors are always open and there's always a, what can we do to help? So we're in a far better place now than we were 20 years ago for these veterans. And we positive things like, for instance, marching at the Cenotaph on Sunday, where we brought 21 veterans together, um, many of whom had been disconnected from the military family 22, 30 years ago and just seeing the pride in their face and also just bringing them together so they could speak to people who have that shared experience and it was a really positive thing and we're doing more of uh, community building uh, things like that and uh, we're very positive that that support is going to be building and growing and fighting with pride as a charity is growing so it's it's a great place um, to be to be able to deliver or to help deliver that kind of support yeah and very important support as well if you think now about where you are in your life and and what you've experienced so far what would you say that your purpose is now then Uh, my purpose I think is to use my own experience to help others to learn from that so I lived in a time whereby it was uh, it was impossible to be me through that difficult period to coming out the other side within the military and it's nice to be able to have that experience to be able to show people the positive benefits of letting somebody be themselves live their life and just crack on and, and do be who they are. So I use that to, um, to deliver talks, do panels, interviews, as well as the work I'm doing with uh, Fighting With Pride. And I, I think I was blessed in a way to have that story to be able to use as a positive thing, because what it does is it helps people to see a lived experience journey of what happens when you don't have that awareness and what happens if you don't understand what's going on in somebody else's lives and the challenges they're meeting and how to address it properly and so on. So so that's what I do. So obviously you've been through such a transformation throughout your life so far to date. So what has been your biggest learning? My biggest learning, I guess, is two things. One is never let go of yourself. Always, you know, have that trust in yourself and, and be yourself. That's uh, one part of it. But also there's an element, uh, well, there's a huge element of that of having trust in other people. Because when that journey that I've been on, I would never have been able to achieve if I didn't have people supporting me and helping helping me along the way. You, could, you couldn't do that on your own. So it's about friends and allies and family and uh, everybody else uh, as well and trusting in them. Because on many occasions, I I didn't, approach a friend or somebody because I worried uh, that they would not necessarily think the way I was thinking or that I would be putting a burden of mine on somebody else Uh, but actually uh, they wanted me to sort of talk to them and to help and to be able to help and and it helped them it empowered them as well to know that they were able to make a difference so 
So that sense of really kind of trusting and remaining true to you and pursuing that, but also trusting others as well, which obviously is not sometimes always easy to do, but it feels from your experience that's really worked and supported you, as you've said. So I know you focus a lot on the military and and ex-personnel from the military, but just if anybody generally was going through the same, you know, the same kind of challenges where they're, they're really frightened maybe to speak out or to share what's going on for them what advice would you give them i would say that there are don't try to do it on your own don't try to handle this on your own it's such a big thing to do and even if you're worried about speaking to somebody that you're gonna uh, you're worried that you're gonna lose them so somebody that you love there are other places to go to talk to people who have shared experiences or who are there able to provide advice so my advice would be to get in touch with those organizations you can find them online a lot of them but you don't have to identify yourself you can go and make sure that you're confident and comfortable about talking to people but it's something if you're scared about doing something and you're scared of those consequences there are other people out there who have been in the same place and they're there to support you so um, do that go and speak to people yeah and the community is there to support and, and to help isn't it because i know you've got the lgbt plus community is growing and has got much more of a stronger voice now than it's ever had so i suppose as you said it's to to reach out isn't it and and to find somebody that you can speak to in a confidential manner just in the first instance that's exactly it and there's so many different uh, organizations out there there's organizations that will help the individual there's organizations that will help the family there's organizations that will help workspaces there's so many different uh, avenues of getting support and guidance and uh, out there um it's it's something that you should never ever try to um never think that there's no way forward there's a way forward you just have to find that way forward and a lot of it will be down to you as an individual because your circumstances will be unique to you and you'll have an idea of where you want to go uh, but also you'll have an idea of the challenges you're facing with those around you but there's loads of really good places as you say that are confidential that will help and provide the right advice and put you in the right direction thank you caroline so where can listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Oh, so Fighting With Pride has got this wonderful website. We're developing it, so it's getting bigger. We're putting more information on there. So we're hoping to get loads of photos of the Cenotaph, for instance, on there soon. So fightingwithpride.org.uk. There's a contact us on there. And there's loads of information about the charity. And there's a newsletter and things like that. So Lovely. Thank you so much. Caroline, it's been an absolute pleasure. You are just such an amazing woman. And thank you so much for sharing your story in the way that you have today. And I'm sure I've learned a lot. I know the listeners will learn a lot, but it's been just a wonderful opportunity to connect with you and talk to you about what you've experienced in your life. So thank you very much. Thanks, Gillian. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you. for tuning in. I'd love to take a moment and tell you about our wellness retreats that will be happening in May 2022 in Mallorca, Spain. My team and I have created four immersive retreats that allows you to take a step back from all the stresses and strains of your daily life in order to focus on your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being. From coaching mastery, mindfulness and meditation, 
conscious living and so much more, we offer a nurturing and truly experiential life enriching environment where you'll reconnect, rediscover and reaffirm who you are and what you want in your life. If you're interested in learning more, head to the fullcircleglobal.com website and click the retreats tab. In the meantime, stay well, invite joy and curiosity into your life and see you soon.